my family in the US would be like, why are you spending so much time in Bali? Like, this is so weird, you know, like, okay, we get it. It has, it has surfing, it has beaches. But the real reason I keep coming here is the community. What's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Kraszowski, and welcome to episode 91 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Upton Saidi. Upton launched the digital video team for CNBC International, and while there, produced reports amassing millions of views online. And one of those segments focused on the digital nomad movement in Bali, Indonesia. And to date, that video alone has over 11 million views across YouTube and Facebook combined. And after that video, Upton found himself slowly becoming a digital nomad himself. During this interview, Upton and I got to discuss the background of how his now famous digital nomad piece came to be why he decided to become a digital nomad after that, and how he convinced a large corporation like CNBC to let him do that. We also got to talk about his recent experience transitioning from an employee to an entrepreneur and content creator, and what that has been like, and what advice he would give to other people making the same transition. Before we jump into the episode, however, I'd love to share a recent five-star review we received from another Tim Jones who says, perfect intersection of digital nomading and fire. Love the podcast. As someone interested in traveling, entrepreneurship, and fire, I'm so glad I found it. Miko has interesting guests, asks great questions, and is a skilled host. Thank you so much for that review, another Tim Jones. I really, really appreciate the kind words. If you would like to leave a review and get a shout out on the next episode of TRL, I've made it very easy to do so. All you have to do is head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash TRL and write your review. That's it. It's that easy. If you're enjoying this podcast, leaving a review is one of the best ways to support us. Reviews are still a key statistic that Apple looks at in order to determine how to rank a podcast. So your review will directly help us climb the rank boards and attract new listeners. So thank you in advance for leaving a review if you choose to do so. If you want to check out the full show notes and a list of resources mentioned in this episode, like a link to Upton's offers and uh, some of his new products, you can do so over at thatremotelife.com forward slash episode 91. That's episode all spelled out followed by the number 91. All right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Upton Saidi. All right, Upton, man. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Well, I, like we were saying before we hit record, uh, I've been following you for quite a bit now and I'm super excited to finally get to talk to you. So um, I I am curious because uh, as somebody who's watched a lot of your videos, I know you used to be based in Hong Kong and now you're in LA. 
So that's a pretty big shift. Like, what brought you back stateside and why go to LA? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the, I, I, I like to say, you know, the pandemic kind of took a dream job and impacted it. Like, I think, it, it, you know, pandemic has impacted many of our careers. Um, so, so in my time, I spent four years building out the digital video team at CNBC International. And what came with the job, you know, which we'll get into later, was kind of going and filming cool stuff, going to China, going to Vietnam, going to Japan, going to Bali. And obviously during a pandemic, you know, I wasn't able to do that. I was, I was stuck on my couch doing Zoom interviews with different executives and influential people and trying to convert that into good YouTube content. And after a few months, we realized that it just doesn't work, right? It just, it didn't, it didn't work. Our views were going down. I personally didn't enjoy it. I, you know, I, I, I'm kind of like you and most people listening to this podcast. I like to be on the move. And if I'm not on the move, I, I need to be in somewhere in a place that, that, you know, really kind of aligns with, with who I am and, and my personality. And so it just got to a point where I could either resist, you know, the pandemic and wait for things to go back to normal or just embrace the new normal. And I, I was like, you know what, let me just go all in. And I think, you know, I've been in LA now a few months and it's been, it's been incredible. And it's been a great, uh, a great journey. It's, it, it's, you know, a lot of, a lot of people looking at the U.S. from the outside think like, wow, the pandemic is so crazy. The numbers are so high. And while that's all true, you know, to be in a place like California is just absolutely incredible. I feel so blessed because it's a year-round outdoor city. We have beaches, we have hiking, restaurants are all open in the parking lots or in their existing outdoor seating. So I, I don't I don't feel like I'm holding my breath necessarily waiting for for things to go back to normal or get better. Yeah, you know, I think like events like this pandemic or the recession in 08 have this tendency to like trigger change in our lives. You know, like I always talk about I'm I'm assuming you're familiar with who Pat Flynn is. Uh, but, you know, he was an architect in 08 and then the recession hit and he didn't have an architect job anymore and he started smart passive income. So it's like this moment that allows you to almost like stop and think and say like, OK, like what I want to what do I want to be doing and essentially kind of like start a life, because a different life, because if you're comfortable, you might not you know, want to take the chance to do something new that you maybe have always wanted to do so. But, you know, I first came across your work when I saw this video on YouTube uh, that you did for CNBC back in 2017 called, I, and I, it was called, I tried living as a digital nomad for a day. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I clicked on it and I watched it. And that's how I met you. Uh, how did you first find out about the digital nomad lifestyle? And how did that, like, how did the making of this video come about? Because I can only imagine you tell, you telling CNBC, like, hey, I'm going to go to this uh, really cool island in Indonesia called Bali and like hang out there and like make a video. So how did you find out about the lifestyle and how did that video come to become what it is now? That's a great question. And this is one of my favorite stories to tell. So it, it happened super organically. You know, I was kind of kind of vaguely familiar with the digital nomad lifestyle, but my whole career I had spent working for, you know, managers in corporate offices in, from New York to Singapore. Um, and so at the time I was based in Singapore and I took off a week from work to take a, to take a, a vacation, a holiday. And I remember looking at flights from Singapore to Bali. It's only about, you know, two hour flight. And I remember seeing like flights were really expensive on Friday night, but like less than half the price on Thursday night. 
So I remember thinking to myself, like, well, you know what? I, I just work on a laptop anyways. My, my, my manager was in London, was based in London. And I was like, you know what? Why don't I just like work from work from Bali on Friday and, uh, and leave Friday night and save all this money for my vacation? And, um, and so I did it and I, I flew to Bali and I was <clears throat> super excited. And, you know, now, even just a couple of years later, this doesn't sound like a big deal for especially <laughs> your listeners, but for most of the world, because we are all working remote. But back in 2017, this was a really foreign concept, you know, to just work for a corporation and like not be working in the office that day and especially be working from another country. <clears throat> so anyway, so I got to uh, Chengdu, which is a a really fun part of Bali and a, known for its for all of its digital nomad scene. Um, so I got to Chengdu and I remember, uh, you know, I googled co-working space Bali and I found this awesome place called Dojo. And it, it was actually as I was walking from my Airbnb to the co-working space on that Friday morning, it was maybe 8.39. And I just had this like sensation rush over me and I was like, wow, like I have a backpack, I'm in shorts and flip-flops and I'm going to work, you know? And, and I was like, you know what, I should do a video on this because that's kind of where we were, we were leaning our videos toward is, is to show more personality and, and tell stories and be more intimate with our audience. And so I literally had the iPhone 7, I think, at the time in my pocket, and I just started filming in, on selfie mode. I started filming on selfie mode, like me walking down the street, me walking into the co-working space, me paying the $15 day pass. And, and I just was like looking around like, this is so cool. All these people are like digital nomads. And, like, and I just kept filming it. And I really stayed true to, to my day, you know? And, and it got to a point where, you know, I'm an extreme extrovert by nature. And so here I was like sitting at this co-working space in kind of by myself, right? I didn't know or talk to anyone. And I kind of felt a little bit like left out because I saw how many people were friends and, you know, caused like meeting and greeting each other. So I actually messaged the, the manager or at Dojo and I was like, hey, I'm a CNBC reporter and I'm doing a report on digital nomads. Would love to talk to a couple people here. And, you know, it was partially for the video, Mikko, but it was partially just because I was like, I was lonely. Because you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, I just wanted to meet people. <laughs> and so an hour later, um, Michael, who's the owner of Dojo, came, you know, introduced himself to me. And he's like, yeah, I found you three people. Why don't you come meet them? So I sat in that open area. And that's where I met a guy named Zach and um, two, two co-founders named Cassie and Shay. Who had built their entire business around um, around the the concept of working remotely and empowering people and teaching people to do that. So I met them and and I literally just kept filming everything in selfie mode and I was like, hey guys, can like can I go to lunch with you? And so I went to lunch with them and we you know I'm sure you remember in the video we went to lunch, we ordered coconuts. Zach ended up going surfing and there's this moment in the video where I I asked Zach, I'm like, all right, so we just we just had lunch. Now Zach, we're about to go for a surf. And I look at Zach and I go, what's your name again? And he goes, Zach, what was your name again? And, he's, and I'm like, Upton. And, and so many people, when we put this video out, so many people in the comments commented on that scene because they're like, why didn't you edit what that out? What were they out? saying? Well, they were, they were just like shocked. They were like, why wouldn't you edit that part out? Or like, how could you have lunch with these people and not know their names? And, and I think the reason I mentioned that to you is to show that it's such a sign of the times, right? People mm -hmm. really want authenticity, even from a brand, you know, a big media conglomerate, they want that authentic connection with people, right? They don't want these like highly produced videos. So, you know, so I spent the full day there, we put out the video and, and I actually told my manager after I filmed it, I was like, hey, I did this video 
on on the digital nomad scene is this the future of work and um i i edited it myself and everything and i showed it to her it was a five minute video she had maybe one or two notes but from aside from that she's like this is good to go and we posted it on Facebook and YouTube. And we saw on Facebook within a couple of days, it, it started to get 100,000 views, 200,000 views. And, you know, it eventually, I think right now it's around 11 million views just on Facebook. And, and, and so a lot of people, you know, back to that comment, they were just like shocked that we put that moment in. Um, but, but, but I, I, you know, so to this day, that was the second highest video of CNBC International, the second highest wow. video. Yeah. And I, I think- yeah. And I, I mean, I've had people come up to me at conferences and, you know, that's like, wait, you're that guy from that digital nomad video. And, and when I take a step back and try and think, well, why did that go so viral? I think it's because one thing I've discovered in my past few years making, you know, digital video content is that people like the intersection of novel and familiar, right? So if I make a video about, you know, AI impacting our brains and chips in our brains, it's probably going to go over a lot of people's heads and, and it, it won't be relatable. But, but you know, so, so what is that novel and familiar is work, right? Familiar, everybody knows what work is. Everybody in the world knows the concept of work, right? But the novel is working on the beach. It's working in Bali. It's working in your flip-flops. So to combine these two concepts, I think was one of the reasons that it gained so much traction. Mm. You know what I, because I totally agree with you, that moment in the video where you ask Zach what his name is again, it is one that kind of makes you stop for a second because it doesn't feel like it should be in there. And I imagine, you know, that's what people meant when they said like, why didn't you edit it out? But the thing that I really enjoy about it is that it's so familiar. Like we've all been in a situation, especially as people who I'm like you, I'm super extroverted. I love meeting new people. And I'm sure there's people out there who've also met someone or been at a conference and met two, three, four, four people all at the same time. And it makes it kind of difficult to remember that person's name. And you're always stuck in that position of like, oh, shoot, I forgot that person's name. And now I need to come up with this like elaborate strategy to get them to say their name. So, that the, you know, it, it's not clear that I forgot their name. And I love the fact that you were just like, hey, what, what was your name again? And then he reciprocated because he probably forgot your name too. And it's just, I think that's such a common thing in our you know, in our world, because you're meeting so many people all the time. And it's so easy to just forget. And it's, I think it should be okay to ask people's names, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I do love that. I do have to ask, though, at the end of the video, you say, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you say that while it looks like a pretty nice lifestyle, you don't see it happening for you anytime soon. Uh, now, obviously that was three years ago and you afterwards did end up becoming a digital nomad and you are now what changed in those three years that you went from, you know, I don't think this is happening for me, but then it did happen. Yeah. It's funny that you bring that up. So I think the reason I said that at the time was kind of, well, two things. One is like, I felt like I, of course I would love that lifestyle back then. The reason I didn't see it happening for me anytime soon was because I worked for this, you know, massive media conglomerate, right? NBC, mm -hmm. MSNBC, CNBC, right? Owned by Comcast, which has tens and tens of thousands of employees. And so how the heck could I be this guy who's, you know, has a full-time job with health insurance and then be a digital nomad? You know, it just, I just couldn't see that path or that route at the time. And, um, 
And, and it is funny too, because it's like in hindsight, when I think about the title, like, can I survive a day as a digital nomad? It's like, it's kind of a silly, ridiculous title. Like, well, what's going to happen? I'm going to like, like come screaming out of the co-working space and go back to my corporate job. No, but, but I think, you know, that was one of the things I learned in creating digital content is, is creating a question. So when you're making videos, like, can you create a question? So you bring your audience, your viewer along with a journey and, and it's the same thing in, in TV and film, right? The reason we watch a movie is, is, is essentially for the major dramatic question is what it's called in screenwriting. Is he gonna get the girl in the end? Is he gonna save the world? Is she gonna come to terms with her father or her disability, right? Like there's so many, it's a very simple question. And if you take any movie that you that you like, you can, you can really extract that major dramatic question that keeps you watching till the end. And I think that was kind of the reason that I, that I phrased it that way, even though it was, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily like, you know, like I said, no one's gonna <clears throat> come, you know, gonna, my day won't, my life won't be ruined because I spent a day as a digital nomad. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, to your question, the, the fact of the matter is the reason I said that at the end is because I didn't, I couldn't imagine myself it, living like that. Um, but then I did. <laughs> and how did that happen? Like, did you just come back from that and go like, oh, that was pretty great. Let's see if I can do more of that. Or like, at what point did sort you decide of, that it was something you wanted to continue doing? Well, it, so basically, you know, we, CNBC had always traditionally been live television and, uh, you know, a website, right? And so in 2016, we launched this inter, the international digital video team, which was everything other than those two platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Snapchat, you know, Instagram, we ended up selling uh, a lot of our content to airlines and flight entertainment. And so our teams were based in London and Singapore. And so after a couple of years of just being in Singapore, which I found to be a little bit, you know, a little bit, it lacked the it lacked a lot of good visual stories. Singapore is amazing for CEOs to interview CEOs, but if I'm tasked with going and like filming people in cool scenes and shots and robots and travel, you know, there's only so much you can do on a, on a small island, right? You can drive from one side to the other in about 45 minutes. So I, I requested a transfer. And so I, the, the network transferred me to Hong Kong and you know, so, so remember now all of a sudden my team is all in Singapore and Hong Kong and then I'm kind of in isolation and sorry, my team is in Singapore and London and I'm in isolation in, in mm -hmm. Hong Kong with the TV, with the TV producers and TV reporters. So after a couple months, you know, being based in Hong Kong, it became very apparent that like, well, what difference does it make if I go into the office or work from my house or work from Starbucks? And then it was like, well, I'm going to Japan for a vacation next week. Why don't I stay for two weeks and film some content? And, you know, my, my, my managers loved that, right? Because obviously I was picking up stories without breaking their budget. <laughs> and, um, and so it just became a win-win. It became a win-win where I would get my best content while I was traveling and, you know, they, they supported that. So were you then, cause you know, I know that you spent quite a bit of time in, in Bali and, and, and you said that you, you know, you love being in Chenggu and that has a little bit, if not more of the problem of Singapore, that it's a small Island with only so much going on that, you know, you could, so many stories that you can collect. Were you then essentially traveling to the stories and then sort of coming back to your home base in Bali and kind of like doing the, the background stuff or how did your, how did your work as a digital nomad in your life as a digital nomad combined with that when you were working at CNBC? 
Yeah, the way I kind of thought of it was my, you know, my, you know, unofficial two bases were kind of Hong Kong and, and Bali. And then, and then, you know, I would travel where the stories were, you know, amidst that. So Japan, Korea, Vietnam, in Bali, yeah, I wasn't, I only did maybe, I, in fact, at one point about a year ago, I made a rule to myself. I was like, no more Bali stories because I was writing articles <laughs> on the the fancy, you know, the, the luxurious Starbucks in Bali. I was doing videos on Potato Head and how they made the the world's like most eco-friendly hotel with, you know, where they, they confiscate your plastic bottles when you arrive. So I, I do feel like I wouldn't say I exhausted all the Bali stories, but, you know, just from an external standpoint, if, you know, our viewers were sitting in Chicago and stuff, it's like, well, how many, you know, what did they have like a Bali bureau now? <laughs> so I, I kind of made a rule to myself, like, okay, no more Bali stories. So the, the vast majority of my time spent in Bali was editing, writing, scripting the videos that I had shot in other locations. I love that because, um, that goes along with something that, I don't know if you're familiar with Naval Ravikant at all, but he kind of has this uh, prediction of work in the future and how it's actually going to be a lot of like short sprints of work and then like long periods of rest where you're maybe not working or doing something in the background. And I love that because it's almost very similar. You know, you were traveling to where the work was, the stories, and then you'd come back to this place where you really enjoyed spending and maybe have a bit, maybe be a bit more relaxed while doing like the background tasks. And, and I love that because it's kind of like already showing that the future that's been predicted by very smart people like Naval Ravikant are actually coming true already, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was interesting. It was a fun kind of way to plan out. And, and I... I think like many digital nomads, I would never really plan more than a week in advance. I mean, there were days when I was in Hong Kong where I would be like, should I go to, you know, Bali tomorrow or just stay in Hong Kong? <laughs> and, and, you know, that's a five hour flight. I mean, it's not exactly, you know, next door, but, but that was just kind of the way I liked to live and, and, and go to places based on my personal interests. Like, oh, I just want to, you know, go to a club or, or go to that museum in, in Tokyo and then and then also professional, right? Like Japan is a gold mine for a digital video journalist because there's just so many crazy cool stories to tell there. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, as somebody who has kind of worked with, I mean, you literally transferred from being a regular worker, quote unquote, to working as a digital nomad in one of the largest corporate, you know, possible companies, right? So for anybody who's listening, who is right now working as an employee, going to the office, or maybe not at the moment, what advice do you have for them if they're kind of like, hey, I kind of want to do this. I want to keep working for my company, but I'd love to negotiate some sort of digital nomad friendly agreement. What sort of advice would you have for them? Yeah, I think this 2020 has been just absolutely incredible in terms of accelerating those opportunities. Mm -hmm. I think it was uh, Schwarzenegger when he was governor of California, he had a huge push to, to, you know, encourage people to work remotely to, to lower the traffic and the congestion here. And he didn't get that far with that movement, but just in the past six months, that movement has accelerated, you know, 20, probably 20, 30 times what his efforts were uh, as governor. And so I think now is, you know, there's never been a better time to have those conversations. I mean, just look at so many of the big tech companies that are saying, you know, don't, don't come back till next June. If you want to get a one-year lease in North Carolina instead of San Francisco, do it. And my personal prediction is that what's going to happen is 
you know, even though a lot of tech companies have said, yeah, you know, your, some of our workforce will be full-time remote and the rest will come back next July or June or whatever. But like, we all know how much changed can change in, in just a couple months, right? So, I mean, my, my, my kind of theory is that what manager in their right mind, you know, next in, in summer 2021 is gonna tell their staff, Okay, guys, like, hope you had a great year and a half working remotely, you know, Monday morning, 9am, don't be late, don't forget where to park, don't forget where you sit, you know, I think all of those conversations are just going to be flipped on the head. And I think, I think that, you know, there, there obviously needs to, a lot needs to be done in terms of taxation and, and all of that in terms of, you know, Zuckerberg saying compensation will be shifted depending on where you are for his employees at Facebook. But I think that, you know, there's never been a better time to, to have these conversations. Um, so how to personally pitch your manager, I would say it's, it's to, it's to, you know, think about the value that you can provide, right? It, it, it wasn't like my managers were doing me a favor by saying, okay, yeah, go, right? It's like, I actually created way more value by, by doing this than had I just been sitting day in and day out in Singapore, Hong Kong, right? And so now obviously, you know, that's going to be harder for a lot of other industries. But, you know, one of my good friends who I met in Chengdu, his name is Glenn, he, he was a CFO for a a medium-sized startup and he says you know what i think i've had it i'm gonna i'm gonna quit and i'm gonna go travel the world for a year and his company came back and said well why don't you just be our continue being our cfo but do it remotely you know full-time we don't even care if you're on a different time zone and he's like oh are you sure and, and they're like yeah and and he did it and so and i think one of the reasons him and i became such good friends in Chengdu and at dojo uh, in Bali was because we both were two of the only people that worked for big companies or, or companies in general. And we weren't, you know, entrepreneurs like pretty much everyone else you meet as a digital nomad. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because I actually even tweeted this the other day. It's, you know, I think the previous sort of digital nomad wave was all entrepreneurs or are freelancers, right? And I think that the next wave is going to be employees, especially because of what COVID's done is now all of these companies, not only are the workers saying, hey, this is pretty nice. I don't need to be stuck in traffic. I don't need to go into the office. I don't need to wear a suit and tie, whatever. But all the companies are saying like, hey, this is pretty nice. Our margins are higher. We don't need to have as big of offices or any offices at all. We can now, you know, hire nationally or even globally instead of just like whatever this location is so we can get better talent so i think both sides are now in this weird place where they're like we don't want to talk about this just yet but i think this might be better do you know what i mean so i agree with you i think this is the best time if you are somebody who wants to work remotely and is enjoying this now is the time to talk about it with your company because hey it works you know you've proven that it works so you might as well do it and the other thing to mention as well and i'm, and I'm curious your opinion on this I've had friends reach out to me and they've said like, hey, like, I know you're a big fan of this whole working online thing, but I really hate working from home. Like this whole like working from home during quarantine thing, like, I don't know how you do it. And the thing that I tell them, and this is what I'd love to hear your opinion on is this, what we're doing right now in terms of remote work is not remote work that we're used to or that we'll likely be doing in three, four, five years because you're kind of stuck at home it's not as nice to go to the coffee shop or a co-working space. You can't really get a lot of the benefits of the remote work that we've enjoyed, that you and I have enjoyed up until COVID hit. What do you think about that? Do you, do you agree that, you know, kind of the experience right now isn't what the experience will be in five years as kind of things start opening up? 
Yeah, absolutely not. I think I think anyone who thinks that digital nomading is synonymous with working from home is mistaken. And, uh, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I, I'm not at home right now. I'm at a co-working space in Los Angeles. I mean, after about a couple of weeks of getting back to the U.S., I joined this incredible co-working space and it's meant for maybe 500 people. And I've never seen more than 10 or 15 people here. Um, but, you know, but I, I need it. I, I'm I'm twice as productive, if not three times more productive. I've, I have met a couple people, but obviously it's, it's pretty empty. But, and same thing when I'm in Bali, when I, you know, I spent a week in Turkey, I joined a, you know, I, I got a day pass to a co-working space for four days. I went to Seoul, South Korea, same thing. I joined, you know, I was able to get a, a one week pass to WeWork. So I think, I think that, you know, definitely agree with those people that say that, especially if you're an extrovert like me, you know, working mm-hmm. from home or working from my hotel or even working from my Airbnb in a cool foreign country, it's, it's just, it's not an option. It just doesn't work. So for me, I've always found the value in joining a co-working space and paying for that because, you know, part of it being my productivity, part of it being the the experience and the, the people that you meet. And I think um, that that when it comes to, you know, people converting from, let's say like nine to fivers to entrepreneurs or remote workers, they need to ask themselves these questions. You know, do they like routine or do they like variety? Do they like people or do they like to keep to themselves? Um, but absolutely, I don't think that the, the whole work from home, especially in pandemic is, is indicative of what that experience is to be, to be a digital nomad. And I think that we're starting to see, uh, have you heard of Draper House? Draper Startup House? It, it was originally- not, no. Yeah, so it was originally started as Tribe Theory, and now it's um, okay. Tim Tim Draper invested a, a a good amount in it, so now it's called uh, Draper Startup House, and this is a this is a place where it's literally like a WeWork meets hostel or Airbnb, whatever you want to call it, but it's an entrepreneurship hotel. And they have at least half a dozen, if not more locations. Now I I covered their, their opening in Singapore. Then they opened one in Bali. They have some in India. I think they now have one or two in the U S and, and I just love this concept because it, I think one reason stopping a lot of, you know, people from saying, Hey, I want to be a digital nomad and go travel the world is community, right? Mm -hmm. It's easy to get on a plane. It's easy to find an Airbnb in Tokyo, in Taipei, in Istanbul, but it's, it's not necessarily means you're going to have any community. Are you just going to sit, sit alone and work all day on your laptop, then eat dinner alone? Like who wants to do that? I mean, some people do, but if you're an extrovert, absolutely not. That sounds terrifying. And, and yes, you can join co-working spaces, but you know, I've done many, like I said, day passes at co-working spaces. And just cause I'm there for a day with my laptop doesn't mean I'm going to have, you know, a community and have people to have lunch with and network with, right. It's not necessarily that easy either. So you, you're, I think we're going to see a ton more of these sorts of concepts like the Draper startup house, which combines the element of, you know, co-working with accommodation, right? So you stay at one of their locations, you wake up and then you have a place for not just co-working, but you see, you know, you're next to a bunch of entrepreneurs. It's, it's just like a co-working space that has beds as well. And I think, I think we're really going to see a ton of those um, because it creates so much more community. And then also what you can do is like, you know, you can go to their different locations and you're already part of a, a broader network, right? You're not kind of mm-hmm. in isolation, just going from an Airbnb to an Airbnb in, in all these random countries. Yeah, I think all of those services, um, like there's a lot of new, 
services being created around this new industry. And I totally agree with you. I think, you know, health insurance is going to be another one that a lot of companies are trying to solve at the moment. Uh, I think just co-living in general, you know, exactly what you're talking about is like, there's, and there's also like community, but then there's like, you know, community because you can go to a WeWork or another co-working space, but who's to say the people there aren't going to be just like the people back home and aren't going to necessarily have like share your interests and that kind of stuff. You know, uh, something like, like what you're talking about with the Draper startup house is something where it's like, you have a community of people who are interested in what you're interested in, which is not something that you can always find in every co-working space. Um, yeah. And, and I just want to comment on that because, you know, it, it reminded me with Bali, my, my family in the U S would be like, why are you spending so much time in Bali? Like, this is so weird, you know, like, okay, we get it. It has, it has surfing, it has beaches, you know, there's yoga, the, the, the cost, the, the cost of food and, and accommodation is incredibly inexpensive. Um, but, you know, but they just didn't get it. Right. And then they came and visited um, my brother, my parents, they came and visited over Christmas and we did three weeks, two or three weeks in Bali. And, and as I was kind of giving them the tour of the co-working space and, and showing them around the, the restaurants and the gym and all that, that's when it really hit me. I was like, wait a minute. It's, you know, those things that I mentioned are, are nice to have, but the real reason I keep coming here is the community. It's the people, it's everybody I meet. That's also a digital nomad. And, you know, the Balinese are, are beautiful, wonderful people as well. And Indonesians, one of my favorite, you know, kind uh, people, but, but the, the, the digital nomads that were coming from around the world to, to work and live there for months at a time, they were all, not okay with the status quo in their home countries. Mm -hmm. They weren't okay to just do work nine to five, get a mortgage, get married and have some kids. They, they wanted more meaning and more purpose in their life. And that looks different for everybody. For some people, it's scaling a multi-million dollar company from Bali as a, you know, an entrepreneur. For others, it's becoming a vegan and, you know, meditating day in and day out. Right. But, but mm -hmm. Even both sides of the spectrum of people that you'll meet in Bali, both of them were, you know, I think what they both shared in common is was not being okay with the status quo of, of how previous generations have lived and how society kind of told them to live. And, and that's what I resonated so much with was like knowing that anybody I met, anybody I met would just be like kind of, you know, have that little fire in them. And, and to me, that was just honestly invaluable. Yeah, maybe like the way in like you have the same goal, but maybe the way in which you're going after the goal is different, right? Like you you don't want the regular thing. You've seen it. You don't want it. And maybe the way in which you go about it is different, but you kind of are both going after it. And, and I totally agree. I had the same thing. I, I actually, um, I like the way that you put it really uh, like a lot, but I have always called it, I, I like people that are on the fringe, people who kind of maybe they are thinking along the outside of the box. Do you know what I mean? And there's almost this like, um, like people who maybe listen to this podcast have heard me say this, like I, I get a fizz, you know, like there's really cool places that I go to and I can't explain it to you. There's something inside that's like fizzy and I like this place. And I, and I feel the same way about people that are on the fringe, exactly you described that have decided that what they want isn't what's regular. They don't want the white picket fence. They want something different, whatever that different is. I, I really love that. Um, I am curious now that you've sort of to kind of shift a little bit. You've left CNBC, you left Hong Kong, you're in LA. What are you working on now? Um, what, are, what are sort of the things that you're pursuing uh, in your life and in business? Yeah, so, so right now I've launched my own channels, my own content uh, across 
Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. And the the premise of my my content is is doing similar videos to what I was doing at CNBC. Um, so now I'm focusing on videos about tech, money, and cultures, cultures as well. So so not not you know we can't I'm not calling it travel, but but exploring different cultures. So some of the best most rewarding videos I did at CNBC was were like you know going covering China's tech scene and how these big tech conglomerates are really coming onto the global scale. Huawei, right? When I moved from New York to Asia in 2016, no tech companies were coming in or out of China. And now, you know, as I leave Asia, four years later, you have two of the four biggest smartphone makers are Chinese, the fastest growing social media app, Chinese. And so a big part of my you know, experience has been covering the China tech story uh, and China's growth, you know, in Australia, investing in Australia, investing in Europe. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, content that I'm very passionate about globally that, um, that I'm continuing to create. I just launched officially just a couple of weeks ago, and it's been quite exciting. And I think the opportunity really speaks for itself, Mitko. Like when I was telling you earlier, about the Bali Digital Nomad, I shot that entire video on my iPhone 7, right? That ended up airing on CNBC globally around the world in every continent. You know, that stuff that I shot in selfie mode on my iPhone 7, right? There were videos that I shot on my iPhone 7 that we sold to airlines. I was on a flight on Qatar Airways and I saw my show literally between like, you know, friends and, you know, these, these Oscar, like Meryl Streep movies, you know, and to me, it just blew my mind. It was, it was obviously an exciting, cool feeling, but more importantly, I was like, wow, like just the fact that I can have somewhat user generated content feel and, and it, it can be, you know, not just sold, but, you know, watched by, by people to me, it, it says a lot about the current space of digital media of media in general mm -hmm. i mean even in the advertising sector i was just on twitter and i saw best buy had a promoted ad and it was a girl you know a, literally a girl with her cell phone like putting the phone down in a best buy store and start dancing right so so it it, it was the the idea is that it's supposed to feel like it's user generated content knowing that that's going to be a more effective conversion than if it was this highly polished best buy ad and so there's we're we're living in a time where people less and less want to see that polished stuff and i always would say this about the digital nomad video if i flew our cameraman from singapore to bali and he put a microphone on me and we did the lights and i said today i'm in indonesia and i'm going to go inside this co-working space to see what all these young people are working on right there's no way that would have gotten 11 million views it probably wouldn't even gotten 1 million views right but for me to do it in selfie mode really created that connection with the viewer and the impact. And so that's that's why I'm creating my own content is because now more than ever, people want to connect with the person. And it's always been like that. I, I lead workshops and I ask people, I say, how many of you first joined Facebook to connect with a big brand or a company? Zero hands. How many of you joined Facebook to connect with a news network? Zero hands. How many of you joined Facebook to connect with a person? It's like every hand goes up, right? So the more and more we can bring this element of there, I can bring this element of, you know, connection to, to my audience, the better. So that's been a big part of my, my projects the past few months. And then simultaneously, 
I'm also hosting workshops. So I've, I've done a number of workshops for companies that, you know, have found their employees to, to just need a little bit of upskilling to become better communicators, better at storytelling, pitching, whether they're pitching to clients or customers. I've done a lot of that. I've done some media training with executives who were going, doing live interviews on CNBC, on Bloomberg. And then, and then I've also, you know, started to come up with some content creation as well. So helping startups, helping brands, um, and actually executing on videos for them, you know, two minute short form videos that help them tell their brand story. And again, a, a native kind of way. So, you know, traditionally someone wants a video, they're going to hire a crew, do an interview, and it's going to be this big, you know, polished like video. And so I kind of help startups by making them videos that are just a little bit more user generated feel and, um, and just short and punchy, right? Because average duration time on Facebook is, is just a lot smaller Instagram as well. So so that's kind of the two, the two or three main, you know, projects that I'm working on. But it's I have to tell you, Mitko, like, I've been been going at it for not even three months now, about two months. And it's been truly some of the most rewarding few months of my, of my life, because I feel like, you know, my value is, isn't determined by, by, you know, uh, a one singular budget at one company, right? Now the market, the global market can, can kind of determine my value and my pricing is, is determined based on, on my clients on a global market. Right. So it's been, it's been truly rewarding. I've hired a, a couple of uh, part-time staff as well to help with some of the, the, um, the initiatives and, and all that. So you've essentially taken the shift from being an employee, right. At CNBC to now being an entrepreneur. I, was that always a part of you? Like, did you always know that you wanted to do that or were you just sort of like, found yourself in that position now? Great question. I, I've always had an entrepreneurial, you know, spirit, I think like mm -hmm. a, a lot of, a lot of people have, but I remember when I, when I graduated college, so many people were like reading the four hour work week and saying like, why would you work for a company up to like, you should go, you can be an entrepreneur and be your own boss. And I remember thinking to myself, like, why would I want to do that? You know, I love, again, being an extrovert. I love connection. I want a boss. I want a mentor. I want to sit in a boardroom and like take notes and, and aspire to be them one day. Um, and it's so funny because even at this co-working space, I find myself, I don't sit in the open hot desking area. I sit in like, you know, some of these boardrooms and even like little offices that are available for common use. And I realized one of the reasons I'm doing that is because when I graduated, I worked at MTV and I was 22, 23, and I would see all the, the VPs were in their 30s at MTV and Viacom, and they all had little offices about that same size. And I remember just being like, wow, how cool, one day, one day, one day, right? Like just their own office. And so now I feel like in a way I'm trying to like, you know, to fulfill that 22 year old like dream, which was to like have an office, right? Which is so silly and ridiculous, but still part of me just needs to fill that and, and I'm doing it, right? Um, but, but yeah, so I've always had that entrepreneurial spirit within me, but I, I knew for sure I wanted to work for a company. I knew the opportunities would be greater. You know, stability, no, I don't think most, you know, 22 year olds care about stability. So I didn't care about that, but it was more mostly about the opportunities and the learning curve, right? Even at MTV News, I always thought of that as my grad school, my graduate school for media and journalism, because I studied finance, I didn't study journalism. And so I, I would, you know, my friends would judge me for not becoming an entrepreneur and I would judge them for becoming an entrepreneur. There's people listening right now who are, they want to start their own thing, but they're right now working still 
as an employee, what advice do you have for them for that shift? Because usually that shift is the most difficult part of the journey in many ways, right? Like once you're cooking and your business is making money, then you're kind of, you know, you have a little bit of gas in the tank to keep going, but that shift can be really difficult. What advice do you have for them to to transition from being employees to entrepreneurs? What were some of the things that you did, for example, that have made your transition easier? Great question. I think a lot of it was actually humbling myself, to be honest. Um, and, you know, I think especially coming as a CNBC journalist where, you know, 99% of the time I could email somebody and they would reply and, and say like, Hey, yeah, what, you know, I either, <laughs> right. I mean, if a, if a reporter emails you, it's either like a good opportunity to be featured or you gotta, you know, protect your, your, you know, defend and, and protect. So, so, you know, coming from that space for seven years, I was a reporter and, and, and journalist for CNBC. So coming from that space to all of a sudden, you know, being my own brand and, and, and reaching out to VCs and kind of, you know, to, to touch base and, and talk to them, it, it was a, it did require a humbling, right? Where it's like, well, now I have to like be like, hey, can we get on the phone? Hello, can we get on the phone? And um, and and so so the humbling, I think I think it would have happened either way in time, but I kind of listened to some podcasts and 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 tried to accelerate that. And so I think if you're coming from a, a background where you might have a, a certain status within your job, within your manager, and then all of a sudden you're, you're an entrepreneur, you might lose a lot of that status, right? And if you have too much ego associated with that status, it's going to be a lot harder. So, you know, even the editor that I hired for my, for my content creation, I kind of went into our meetings, you know, okay, well, I've you know, the past couple of years, I've made videos and edited videos that have generated more than 100 million views, right? That was kind of my status. And you're, you're the editor that I've hired. And then, you know, he blew my mind with the kinds of things he knew about YouTube and, and optimization and, and just so many different things um, that I'll, you know, after a couple of meetings with him, I started to just shut up <laughs> and shift my focus and then started asking him I said okay well what do you think well what do you think for subtitles what do you think you know and it, it really kind of changed the conversation again I, I went in as though I'm the expert and here's what I need you to do um, to all of a sudden like what do you think here's what I'm thinking but what do you think right and so that to me has been just like a huge it, it wasn't an easy shift but once I was able to accept the humility of like you know what, I'm just here to learn for the next six months, 12 months. I mean, ideally my whole life, but, but, you know, I need to give myself that space to say, okay, I was really good at this. I was known for that. And now I'm just an entrepreneur and I need to humble myself. I need to ask for help. I need to ask for opinions. I need to like, you know, get on the phone with people and say, this is what I'm doing. What do you think? What's, what do you see is wrong with, with this business model or this service offering that I'm offering to my clients? Um, and, and so, yeah, it's really, a, it's like a lot of humility. I think the sooner you can kind of get to that and, and yeah, the sooner that you can get to that, the better. And, and it's all about expectations too, right? I think a lot of people might think like, okay, it's going to be hard to be an entrepreneur, but for me, the whole humility thing and humbling yourself just never really occurred to me. I actually thought it would be the opposite. I thought it would be like, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. I, I, you know, I'm the CEO of my own agency, right? Like, like how cool is that? And then in reality, it's like, you know, and there is a little bit of that, <laughs> but, but it's, it's mostly just like, okay, like, let me figure this one out. Let me, let me ask some people why this isn't working.
So in terms of like percentage of business to phrase it that way, are you mostly like funding the transition from client work um, and then kind of like taking like some of the time now that you're self-employed into creating videos? Is that kind of like how it's working? Exactly. It's about 50-50 of my time. So 50% of my time is is working with clients and that generates, you know, revenue plus uh, doing video creation for clients. I'm also talking to some, you know, established media companies as well about freelance projects that I might mm-hmm. come in and do a five-part video series for them. Um, so, so that's the, that's the, 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 the nice revenue generation. And then the, the cost center becomes, you know, paying my editor and, and creating these videos. And, and, and even that, you know, like putting out a video on CNBC and seeing it get 100, 200, 500, a million, you know, thousand, a million views, right. In a couple of days was not uncommon. And now it's like starting my YouTube channel and seeing the video get 43 views. And, you know, I literally started with zero subscribers that took, that took a lot of humility, you know? And I told myself from the beginning, it's like new video comes out every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and that's it. And I, and I actually told myself, I was like, I don't care about views at all the first six months or maybe even a year. It's just about consistency. The thing that I will check is my growth rate, right? What is that percentage growth rate week on week? And that will be my barometer of kind of my KPI. But aside from that, like I cannot fixate on subscribers or number of views, right? Because that'll just, I'll just end up dead in the water, you know, before I even start. So so yeah, that's kind of how it's been. That's kind of my business model right now. And, and the plan is in a year or two years to eventually merge the two, right? Where it's like, mm. I'm, I'm creating this content. I, I've built up my audience and then I can start to work with, with brands or tourism boards, whether that come coming in as a consultant or content creator or a mix of the two. Um, that's kind of the ultimate goal for the next two years. Yeah, the the views game is dangerous, man. Like even without coming from CNBC and having millions and millions of views and subscribers, some of like, I think maybe like eighth or I don't know, like in that range of video that I published got like, I think 30 or 40,000 views. And I was like, oh, here we go. And then ever since then, you know, now it's like, even when I get a hundred views or 200 views on a video, I'm always like, oh, but why isn't it thousands? Do you know what I mean? So it does hit like you, it's almost, I think it can almost be a bad thing if you have a video that really kind of pops in some way early on, because you think that that's where your energy comes from. And then it might not result in the next, you know, 50 videos that you put out and it can be really, you know, demoralizing to, to continue doing it, but sort of heading hey, towards I, wrapping. Can I just yeah, comment one, one real quick on that? I, Cause you know, that, I think that one was a really tricky one for me. So, you know, we would put out videos on Facebook and that was around the time of the digital nomad video got seven, eight, mm-hmm. you know, 9 million views. And just months later, Mark Zuckerberg said, I'm going to change the, the algorithms because there's too much there's two, there, that was around the time where like really, you know, dumb viral, like clickbait videos were just like consuming our feeds. I don't know if it was consuming your mm-hmm. feed, but I would go on Facebook and it was all these like, watch what happens next. This, you know, mother does this crazy thing. Right. And so Zuckerberg had had it and he said, I'm changing the algorithms and everyone's going to get impacted. And our, our views literally went from maybe like a hundred thousand views in the first 24 hours on one of my videos to maybe at most 2000 like literally within the span of a couple months. And that was so devastating and, and demoralizing. And what I had to do was I had to actually be very honest with myself. And, and I realized that like, you know, I had gotten to a point where I would 
refresh constantly when I was walking to work, when I was waking up. And I was like, it'd be so cool if this video hits a million views, refresh, refresh. Oh, it's a million views. Cool. Well, you know, what would be really cool is 1.5 million views. And, and it's, you know, it's that constant, like, I guess, slot, you know, gambler, addict, whatever um, dilemma. But, but I had to actually call myself out on that and say, wait a minute, like, this is sick. You know, are you, are you doing it for the views or are you doing it because you love it? And that's right. where the 80, 20 rule really was powerful for me because I was like, well, 80% of what I'm doing this for at the, at the time was the views 20% was process. And so I worked really kind of hard on flipping that. I, I, I flipped it from 80% to, I flipped it to 80% process. I just love doing it. I love the flow state that I get when I create these videos 20% will be, you know, how did it do? And I've really maintained that, especially, you know, now that I'm creating my own content. Another, another thing I tell some of my clients is like, when you hit publish, that's your win. Your win is not, did it get 500 views or 500,000 mm. or 500 million? It's, did you hit publish, you know? Love and that. that's how I think of it. The second I hit publish, I'm like, do a little victory dance and, and start working on the next one. Yeah, I love that. That's so good because like, if you love the process and this is why, you know, like I always tell people like you need to find the happy medium between like what your clients and what the market wants and the thing that you want to do. Because if you're doing something just because there's opportunity, but you don't love it, somebody who loves it's going to, you know, beat you into a pulp because they will obviously put more work into it because they enjoy it and it's easy for them and it's play for them. It's not work, you know, so you need to find that happy medium where you're getting paid for what you're doing the market needs it, but also you need to do it because you love doing it. So uh, I totally agree. It, it's really great to find that. I do want to ask kind of before we start signing off, you've spent, you know, a few years now living as a digital nomad. Obviously, you've spent a lot of time in Asia and everybody listening has probably at this point heard about Chiang Mai and Bali and all of these places that are sort of like the regular two hit locations. But what are some of the locations that you think more people need to keep an eye out as digital nomad kind of hotspots. Are there any spots that you've been like, more people need to come here and know about this place? I think, you know, I've spent a, a fair amount of time in Istanbul, but not, a, mm -hmm. not enough to know, you know, what it's like to be a digital nomad. But I've seen so many of my digital nomad friends, and I'm sure you have too, just spend time in Istanbul. Part of it is, you know, they're open during pandemic. And so I think that's one of the, you know, bigger reasons. But it, it is just such a magical place in terms of culture, food right now because of the, the lira, the, the um, costs are just amazing coming from outside of Turkey. And um, yeah, I think that's kind of my goal actually in early 2021 is to do one, two months in Istanbul. And, um, and so I think that's a place that people should really look into because it's, like I said, it's really just such a nice mix of, of culture and people. Oh, the other one too is Vietnam. I think Vietnam is, you know, look, the internet is not necessarily going to be the best. So if you, you know, if you're doing a lot of uploading and downloading, you know, maybe reconsider, but, but if, you know, if you have a more, if you have like a more, like you were talking about earlier, people working really hard and then kind of scaling back, mm -hmm. if you're kind of looking for a place where you do just want to work 20 hours a week, I think Vietnam is such a beautiful country because it's just, it, it's innately lends itself to kind of traveling, you know, two weeks here, then going north or going from north to south or vice versa, two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. 
the food is incredible. The people is incredible. And I, I cannot think of a less expensive place that I visited the past few years than Vietnam. Um, and the scenery is incredible. So yeah, the, between Vietnam and Istanbul. Well, and especially when like the new global Wi-Fi's come out, like the one that SpaceX is doing, like the Wi-Fi things are going to be a yeah. problem of the past. Like I know there's people reporting, I was reading the other day, they're getting 160 megabits download from the new SpaceX wow. in certain locations. So I think- And, and actually, in, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think in the next five years, they're moving so quickly that in yeah. five years, I don't think we're even going to think Wi-Fi as like a problem. That's a great point. You're right. I think just on default, so many people bring up Wi-Fi, but, but it's like funny because now as you say that, I'm thinking about we were literally in a van in, in northern Vietnam and the, this big van with my parents and the guy said, here's the Wi-Fi. And the connection was incredible. And we're literally hmm. cruising down, you know, the highway in, in the middle of the farmland. And my dad literally was like, in the U.S., we could never have Wi-Fi like this uh, in the middle of a highway. So, so you're right. It's probably not so much of an issue, actually. There are a lot of locations that you would think don't have good Internet, but almost for some reason they like skipped. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe in the 80s, 90s, they weren't very tech developed, but they almost like, like leaped, you know, like positions and they have really good Wi-Fi. Like, for example, I was born in Bulgaria and I still spend quite a bit of time in Bulgaria. Internet in Bulgaria is just stupid good for whatever reason. Like in, in the town that I spent a lot of time in Varna, you can go to like a place where you want to get like, uh, you know, just like some food, like some stand on the side, and they had 50 up and 50 down. And you would be like wow. paying a lot of money for that in the US. So I think a lot of places are starting to develop Wi Fi. And even if they're not developing it themselves, once we have global Wi Fi, like from SpaceX or something similar, um, I really think that that's going to be another, you know, gasoline into the fire moment for digital nomads. Now, last question. And I got to ask this before we jump off because you've interviewed Gary Vee. Not once, but twice. And the second time you even, oh, three times. Okay. I missed one interview. Okay. But I know that in one of them, I don't know if it was the third or the second, you made me durian, which was hilarious to watch, which if people don't know what durian is, they should look it up. It's like the smelliest fruit ever. Um, but what is he like in real life? You know, just kind of curious. Oh my God. So Gary V and I don't, I don't say this about a lot of people that I necessarily meet in real life, but Gary V was like the, and every time I met him, it's actually, I've met him four times. Every single time he was just like the nicest, sweetest guy you can imagine. Like you see him all over, you know, social and everything in videos. And you assume that he's going to be more or less the same, but he, I don't know how, but he's even like a sweeter guy in person. And I, I don't even know how someone can be. And the reason I just find that so crazy is because I'm thinking about like trying to put myself in his shoes. If some, if, you know, people were constantly asking for your photo and advice and pitching you, I just, I, I just like, I, I can't help but laugh at, you know, when I talk about it because the amount of patience he has and just humility and just, just authenticity he has is, is absolutely incredible. When I interviewed him in Dubai um, last year, you know, that somebody literally snuck in backstage and started like pitching him her idea. And, and his management was pissed, you know, the security was pissed. I was pissed because it was cutting into my like interview with him. And Gary was literally just so patient and genuine with him. His mind was literally with her. It wasn't like I should be nice because there's cameras or I should be nice because mm -hmm. you're human. It was just, he just like treated her as if she was one of the VIPs who paid to be there. And 
And to me, and I, I can imagine his management would be a little bit more frustrated, but to me, that's like the ultimate sign of just like an, an incredible, awesome human being, you know, leader, yes, but just like human being is, is just, yeah, it, it really, it's just an inspiring, uh, inspiring moment to see something like that. Yeah, I always think about, I read somewhere that Tim Ferriss was in a bathroom, like at like a urinal, like using the restroom. And somebody walked up to the urinal next to him and started pitching like whatever idea he had. And I guess Tim just turned to him and was like, not the time, dude. Like, this is not the time to do this. So I can't even imagine, like, I think Gary Vee's even like above that in terms of like investors. So I can't even imagine what he has to deal with. So that's a great point. Well, man, I've had so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Uh, if people want to check out, you know, all the work that you're doing online, where can they find you uh, on social media and where can they watch and subscribe to the YouTube? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just at Upton. So that's at U-P-T-I-N. That's my handle on Instagram and then YouTube.com slash Upton. And yeah, um, love, love connecting with people. And I know that you had said you're doing some uh, PR and you did mention you have some media work. You did say to me that you have an offer for anybody who's interested in, in doing some work for that, right? What, what, what is that? Yes, exactly. So I just recently launched. So basically what I found is that, you know, most, most early stage startups, they, they don't have budget for a PR agency, right? For five, 10, 15 grand a month, which is usually mm -hmm. on average what it costs. So they end up doing no PR at all. So I just launched a recent program. Uh, which basically I have a two week and a four week option that that teaches early stage startups or or even I've, I've worked with a lot of personal brands as well, like coaches and things like that. It teaches you exactly how to craft your brand story. You become crystal clear on your brand story. So we work one on one with me individually. And then from there, I teach you exactly how to, to pitch a journalist. And in, in some cases, I'll, I'll write that initial outreach for you and teach you how to think like a journalist you know, with the, with the, the fact being that, you know, for, for seven years, I got, you know, between 50 and hundred emails a day with PR pitches. Right. So I know exactly how to stand out from the noise and how to create impact and, and get a journalist to, to buy into your story. Um, so I have a program that's, that's a, that's a one-off that, um, that I, that I'm offering. I just launched it about two weeks ago. Um, and I'm happy to also offer, you know, any listeners of this podcast, 20% off of that program as well. Um, so if they're interested, they can, they can reach out to me. Um, I'm sure we can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll have any links in the uh, in the description for this or in the in the show notes. So if you want to send me a link or something, I'll put it up there. But Upton, dude, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Uh, hopefully, next time we can meet up in person somewhere, maybe in Istanbul. But uh, yes, thank you, brother. I appreciate that. you being on. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much for having me.